Welcome to the Tech Cat Show with host Lori H. Schwartz. Each week we hear from established leaders in the technology and consumer industry. Finding out the scoop should never be this much fun. Now, here is your host, Lori H. Schwartz. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Tech Cat Show. And we are um, broadcasting right now live from California, Los Angeles, California, and um, continuing to to discuss and talk with thought leaders about the impact of our current um, environment with the um, coronavirus and how it's impacting business and the media and entertainment industry. And so I'm very excited to this week have Dan Greenberg, who's the CEO and founder of Share Through. Let's have a big hand for Dan Greenberg, everybody. Woo! <laughs> Thanks for having me, Lori. Crazy audience out there. So um, we're going to plunge deeply into the world of online advertising today. And Share Through is one of the largest independent native advertising pa- platforms out there um, that powers in-feed native ads for publishers. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, more more about that. But Dan, tell us about your whole background because you have a really interesting sort of path to how you got here. Sure. Uh, born and raised in Oakland, California and have never left. Oakland to Palo Alto to San Francisco, back to Berkeley. You're seeing me here in sunny Berkeley today uh, in month three of quarantine lockdown with a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home uh, as well oh my as God, a, wife, so lucky. a wife who runs her own company as well. Uh, so it has been busy and fun here. That's great. And and um, tell tell us just about the different types of uh, of work that you've been doing and the, um, the different types of jobs you've had. Sure. So ShareThrough is actually an 11-year-old company now. I'll tell you the quick story of uh, how we got here. I started this company actually out of Stanford. Uh, I was in a master's program in sort of the mix of computer-human interaction science of persuasion uh, and just kind of like the engineering world of Stanford uh, and kind of the intersection of all those things, how not just humans can persuade other humans to change behavior, but how computers can change behavior of, of humans. So how a computer can be used to trigger action, how technology can be used to subtly or, or overtly uh, encourage behavior change or you know, move somebody on the path towards behavior change. So I spent a, a couple of years actually in a lab working on like hands-on real sort of research-driven lab work about how does a computer change someone's behavior, not related to advertising, but related to health research and around uh, like child development and a bunch of other things around just like how do you get a computer on its own to change a human's behavior? You know, there's thousands of years of history of tracking human-to-human persuasion, but the concept of uh, mass digital persuasion or mass digital behavior change, or even just designing for behavior change is something pretty new. Uh, and so I've, I kind of think about myself as a behavior designer in some ways, uh, and ideally uh, ideally done for good. You know, I think advertising sometimes gets a bad rap, uh, but I want to talk today about why we believe that what we do is uh, in the right spirit uh, and in, in the right direction for continuing to help the open internet thrive, uh, and continuing to try to move the internet to a much more human-centric place. Uh, I can talk about how we got from that world of persuasion to where we are now, but maybe in just like a 10-second nutshell, I can describe what we are today, and then I can tie the thread between the two. That sounds great. Uh, so like I just said, the mission of this company is really about preserving the open internet. So content can be accessible, can be independent, 
Um, and that some of it can be funded by subscription journalism. You know, there's some people who can afford to pay for subscriptions and there's some sites that can afford to hire staff and you know, operate as a business just based on subscriptions. But for most people in the world um, and for most content businesses, advertising is a really critical and fundamental pillar for their business model. Uh, advertising to date on the internet, uh, up until I'd say the age of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, has really been kind of a foreign object. Advertising has been this other thing that you stick onto the page, a, a video that plays before another video, um, podcast audio ad that just interrupts the podcast to inject something different and foreign. Uh, but the best versions of ads are the ones that are integrated. You know, the best podcast ad is one where the host actually reads it aloud and talks about it and has a story about it. You know, the best, like the old-fashioned model, kind of. Yeah, the old-fashioned model, uh, but now done you know, digitally, targeted, programmatically at scale. And so what we do at ShareThrough is we're trying to bring a, a more human-centric design to digital advertising. So more human-centric, more empathetic, and more just with the times and the times being that people don't want to be forcibly interrupted. People don't want things flying around pages that get in their way. Obviously privacy stuff matters you know, underneath all of that. Uh, what share through is at its core is an ad exchange that connects publishers and journalists and you know, content sites with advertisers, advertisers being like Coca-Cola, Procter and Gamble, Unilever publishers being like timing people.com, Rolling Stone, you know, CNN, etc. We act as the technology platform, that powers ads that fit in. So ads that are more integrated, more respectful, more comprehensible, so that ultimately, fingers crossed, when everything comes together, all the technology pipes and all the, the bid responses and bid requests and all the programmatic connections in our ecosystem, when they all ultimately coalesce together, the ad on the screen that the human sees is just more comprehensible. That the user says, yep, I get it, it makes sense, it's an ad for... XYZ product, I'm interested or I'm not interested, uh, that headline makes sense to me and you know, I can read it, click or move on. But just doing it with the mindset of sort of human-centric design to me is the, the new thing that we bring to the space that historically uh, just really hasn't existed. And the, the term native advertising, can you talk a little bit about where that came from? Um, yeah, so native advertising is something that I would say coins the phrase around a concept that has existed for a long time. Like you called out a few minutes ago, you know, the old way, the traditional way, the way that advertising used to be would be ads that are integrated and marketing that's integrated. And on the web, um, and also obviously a lot of newspaper and magazine advertising, it's more a foreign object that's stuck in on top later, as opposed to something that's weaved into the fabric of the content or weaved into the user experience. And so what native advertising is, is an all-encompassing sort of coining of a phrase around this concept of ads that fit in. So Facebook sponsored stories are integrated to this feed of other stories. Instagram promoted photos are, are integrated to the feed of other photos in Instagram. Uh, you look at Amazon, promoted listings, promoted products are integrated to the feed of other you know, products inside of Amazon. When you look at a, a standard square colorful banner ad on CNN, that banner ad is not integrated to the user experience of CNN. Yeah, when you see a when you try to watch a video and then some other video pops in front of it and stops you and makes you, you know, watch it, that's not integrated to the experience of that video. So native is a, a phrase that we coined actually and popularized uh, that obviously has taken the industry uh, pretty far and has gone far beyond just our company. 
it, it's a encapsulating concept that differentiates integrated advertising from unintegrated advertising. Uh, and there's merits to both. There's merits to having an ad that takes over the whole screen and says, you know, screams at the user, here I am, and right. grabs them by the hair and shakes them and says, I'm a big ad, look at me. And there is value to that. It's not necessarily something that I'm morally interested in or, you know, personally as a human want to be interrupted like that. Uh, but there's also obviously value to the idea of being integrated to the user experience. And so native advertising to me starts with that concept of the human. What's the human going to see or experience when they see the ad on the page? Um, and we do our best to make sure that when they see it, they A, understand, understand that it's an ad. We've done a lot of work with the FTC and just the regulatory bodies to make sure that when an ad is seen, it's also understood that it's an ad. Uh, but then B, when someone sees it, they don't just see it and move on. They don't just see like the picture of the Geico lizard and then move on or the picture of you know, a happy family with a kind of blurry text on top of it and move on. But they actually read the text or they actually read the headline. They actually perceive it and comprehend it. Uh, because to me, if you boil down all of advertising, like the whole purpose of advertising in any medium, aside from the small little bit of advertising that's just purely about emotion, almost all advertising is about getting someone to comprehend a message. Now, from comprehension comes a bunch of other actions. Buy the product, sign up for the newsletter, donate to the thing, vote for the candidate, you know, yada, yada, yada. But if you don't comprehend the meaning, there's not usually a ton of reason to be doing advertising. You know, there's only very small cases where it's just all you need is someone to feel a feeling next to your logo. But even then, if you really boil it down, the reason that you know, Nike sponsors LeBron James is so that people just comprehend LeBron wears Nikes, period. If he wears Nikes, I should wear Nikes. You know, the reason that Procter & Gamble sponsors the, you know, the Olympics and did the whole big mom's initiative last, last Olympics, which was so amazing, was to just say Procter & Gamble is here for families. And we're, we're, we are where you are, and we share the same sort of sentiments that you have. Uh, but in most cases, advertising is a lot more purpose-driven. Um, it's a lot more like, hey, we have a new product. Here it is. Hey, our car is very safe. You know, you need to comprehend that. Hey, we have an, a new approach to XYZ. Here's an ad that helps you understand our approach to that. Um, and so our, our whole business model is designed around an advertising model that is modern and programmatic and technology-driven and available through the whole ecosystem, but specifically designed uh, for human comprehension. That's great. And it's really about creating context around the ad, which is what you're really talking about. Now, um, just for, for some of our listeners who may not know this, and I think pretty much everyone does, but I just like to sort of establish it, the concept of programmatic. Can you just give a really brief definition of that so we could set the stage sure. for the conversation? Yeah, programmatic is, I guess, another all-encompassing phrase, similar yeah. to native, and then it's, there's no like dictionary definition, but technically what it means is that traditional advertising was bought by a, a salesperson calling up a buyer and then them agreeing to some terms and then faxing a piece of paper to each other. And that fax-based model kind of still exists. It's done over email, or it's done over a phone, or it's done over just contracts sent back and forth between buyers and sellers for TV and for digital ads. And mo you know, much of advertising is still sold in the kind of traditional model. What programmatic says is I'm going to log into a system as a buyer. I'm going to set up my campaign, upload my creative, set up my ads, and then 
set up my targeting, set up my goals, and inside of an actual bidding system, a buying system like Google AdWords or inside of Facebook's ad platform or you know, a variety of things called DSPs, demand-side platforms, Amobi, Adobe, MediaMath, TradeDesk, DataZoo, DV360, and there's you know, 10 or 20 that matter. Uh, but of those, probably only a couple matter, TradeDesk and DV360. Uh, a buyer is going to log into those systems and pro across a bunch of different partners with whom they still have relationships. So they still have relationships with the, the buyers that or with the publishers that they're buying across. Uh, but they're buying it in a way that's technology mediated and it's uh, their hands on keyboard actually buying something versus them having to like find the phone number for the sales rep who works at CNN and then calling the CNN sales rep and asking to place an order. Mm. So programmatic is a, a connection of technical, technical pipes that are integrated so that publishers like CNN and Hearst and Gannett and Time can connect their supply with the demand side of Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Coca-Cola, and allow them to transact through standardized protocols and standardized pipes that creates so much value beyond this sort of traditional phone-based you know, order model. Targeting, unified research, unified um, audience capabilities, being able to optimize across a ton of different partners. Uh, and so the programmatic, we can talk about it too, but programmatic sometimes gets a bad rap because it, it often means like mass scale, like you're buying everything on the web. But programmatic really means like technology mediated and technology empowered advertising. And that if, if it's done right, you still work with strategic partners, you still understand what you're buying, you still are very purpose-driven in what you buy, but the way you buy it is just much more in your control than like sending an order across the transom and then crossing your fingers that it gets delivered the way you hope. Right, <laughs> blind, blind purchasing. So now we're combining these two ideas of this native contextual advertising or approach along with the programmatic, and, and we have what you guys do so, so well. So we, we, we've had this moving forward, and then along comes the coronavirus and everything kind of changes in our immediate world in terms of consumer behavior because we have all these, um, you know, new life needs that literally appeared overnight the minute we all started sheltering at home. So what have you um, experienced with Share Through that's changed since um, the virus hit and since consumers have now been sheltering at home and so companies like Clorox, which were always known, but are now sort of um, almost become a daily statement. You know, Clorox comes up in some <laughs> conversation daily, and just our needs have changed so much in the last couple of months. So, how has that impacted in, impacted your world? Uh, a lot of ways. So we can slice this conversation in a bunch of different paths. So I'm going to take the optimistic path first, which is that I think it's accelerated brand's commitment to being human. It's accelerated Clorox's commitments, Procter Gamble's commitments, really any brand that cares. When they stop for a second, say, okay, wait, what do we need to be saying in this day and age? What do we want to be saying? What do we want our voice to be? What message do we want people to hear from us? It's a forcing function for them all to start from the standpoint of being human. And they all do it in their own way. And every car company is now saying, you know, we're here for you. And every CPG company is saying we're here for you and in some ways it's kind of a parody and that they're all saying the same thing which is we're right. all here for you right. um, but it's a starting point 
And there's a lot of brands that historically have not been human. I, I do think it boils down to this, the point I was starting with, which is that most brands don't expect people to read their ads. They don't expect people to care about their ads. So they design them historically, design them to be displayed on a big screen or to play nicely on TV or to look really nice when you design the banner. But they're actually not designed for comprehension and not designed for a human. Uh, sometimes we'll even you know, show a client their own banner and say, I want you to read the words in this banner out loud. Just with your voice, say them out loud. And they go, well, these words were never intended to be said out loud or read. Like, we would never want someone reading that. <laughs> like, well, if, if the words are in the banner, why do you want someone not to read it? Um, and so this is a sort of a starting point to remind people that, like, look, people or to remind brands, and they are the brand marketers who work at brands, that people are going to be paying attention to you and they are going to be reading your, your content. And if you're going to change your strategy right now, and I think you, know, you and I on this call can uh, unpack some of those strategic changes to messaging and uh, ad strategies, but if you're going to change a strategy right now, it's going to have to move in the direction of human. There's very few brands that are saying, we're going to just go into our shell and keep doing marketing around random memes or random you know, products that have nothing to do with the world around us. I think it's this moment has forced brands to like look inwardly and say, look, we can, we're marketing to humans. So let's be our, let's try to be as respectful and empathetic as possible. Uh, there's also, if, if I slice this conversation another direction, we could talk about the impact it's had to the overall ecosystem, but I think that's probably a bit of a yeah, I mean, discussion and that like, there's a lot of categories that are having trouble and a lot of categories that are succeeding are, right. and we don't, we don't has need to necessarily it, go down that path too much. Has it changed though? Um, you know, how much brands are spending and um, their commitment to getting their message out or has just who's spending changed? It depends on the, the industry and it depends on the company. You know, any company who's had their supply chain challenged and who doesn't have product to sell is generally limiting their spend. Any company who's had their demand impacted like hotels or airlines obviously are not spending a ton of money on advertising right now because there's no behavior change action. There's no other than like the emotional tie to making sure you st still pay attention to Marriott. Right. They're not trying to sell you hotel rooms right now. So by industry, there's definitely some that have been impacted for either reason, reasons, supply or demand. Uh, but also positively, there's some where it's, you know, Microsoft Teams is spending a lot more money on ads right now than they were two months ago because people need to use their product and they're, you know, right, they're trying right. to capitalize on the moment. Um, I'm personally more interested in looking at the strategy and the message as to how they're going about it. Uh, because by category, it's going to ebb and flow with the times. But I guess I would say as a macro category, digital advertising and programmatic advertising, when we get through all these challenges, will continue, the, the tide will continue to move in the direction uh, of both digital and programmatic advertising. Uh, brand buyers who weren't yet doing digital are clearly figuring out digital now. Um, and brand marketers who weren't doing programmatic and were still ordering based on phone calls and based on you know, handshake agreements or contracts are realizing that the, the flexibility and the performance that you can get out of a standard traditional buy versus a programmatic buy that you really have control over and you really have the ability to optimize is just night and day. And so if you, the moment you've like tasted the fact that you can actually optimize your own buy or your agency can do it on your behalf, but optimize it 
in real time with kind of the flow of the internet, it's hard to go back to that old world of saying like, I'm going to do a buy with a handful of creatives for six months and then step away and just let it run. So this idea of using digital channels to move the business forward and then realizing that it's a living, a living process. It's not a one-time thing and you walk away from it, but all these channels and platforms like you uh, afford brands the opportunity to really pay attention to what's happening right now and then make changes and adapt based on that. Yeah. And adapt not only the creative messaging and the content strategy, but also even just adapt to the performance. Um, in, in a lot of cases, a, a pre-programmatic, a brand would set up and say, I'm going to spend a, a million dollars in Q4, Q4 on back to school. We're going to spend $100,000 on this partner and $200,000 on this partner and $300,000 on this partner and you know, the rest on Google. But if it turned out that Google was by far your under underperformer or the worst performer, it didn't really manifest itself until much later. Versus programmatic allows you to see that you know, day by day, week by week, month by month. And then the moment you see that, hey, one of these channels is working better, programmatic as a mechanism to buy allows you just to optimize between supply sources or optimize between exchanges or optimize between formats, as well as obviously optimizing between creatives. Uh, but lets you do that in a way that you just couldn't really do in the traditional model. So uh, it's so interesting. So there's also this blur happening now between the entertainment content that we consume, right? So we're, um, we're all, the numbers are up on all the streaming platforms, the Netflixes, the Hulus, and then also um, all this um, other content that has now moved to streaming, whether it's B2B or B2C. So if, if I'm buying online in those environments, but now they're also moving to my living room because I have a connected box of some sort or I'm, Chromecasting or whatever it is. So is now your world occupying OTT and what people would consider in the past broadcast, even though it's broadband driven now? So right. am I watching your the benefit of your platform on ads in a broadcast environment? For us particularly and today, not yet, but it's definitely something that we're exploring and starting to test. Uh, OTT or connected TVs the connection point that I think will bring online video into the living room and online video into the uh, sort of broad or mainstream world of yeah, whatever broad, we're call broad it, reach video. Same. <laughs> uh, and it'll just be called video. You know, yeah, video yeah. ads, video ads. And I think some DSPs have already started to unify those things. Yeah. Uh, it's the buying mechanism that's different, but the buying mechanism will unify at some point. What I would hope for, and the reason that we've been um, – to date reluctant to jump into it. What I would hope for is that the ad formats and the actual human experience of seeing that ad also improves along the way mm. because it would be a dead shame to say we've upgraded our uh, technology models and we've upgraded the targeting capabilities and we've brought digital video to the living room, but the form factor is still holding somebody's eyes open and forcing them to watch your ad. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I call it the clockwork orange ad model. The like, <laughs> hold your eyes open, tie you to the couch, and make you watch the ad. That just doesn't work anymore. And it, you will know, put differently. It actually works really well if you can force somebody to watch your ad. Right. But if you're trying to force them, and as a result, they skip it, they mute it, they block it, they move past it, they whatever, then that model doesn't work. And so I, I would hope that as we transition to a more digitally connected you know, OTT type of ad model, 
that the formats also come along with it. The formats become more human, more empathetic, more choice-based, and not the old world of, like, huge video on the screen that plays for 30 seconds, and you, know, you watch it if you're a zombie, but if your brain is turned on, you skip it, mute it, or change the channel. Right, because you don't want to watch it. And is that the same concept behind uh, potentially a lot of these connected devices that soon will have screens as well. So everything's voice activated, everything has a screen, you know, I walk into my home and different things are connected and responding to me. Um, are you looking at the, you know, the IOT world, the internet of things world as also a place that you may be managing content? Yeah, uh, today we're web, desktop, mobile, content sites, uh, apps, yeah, that's the extent of my my own company's universe. But in terms of this space, agree that native will permeate everywhere. Um, I've had this, I don't know what I would call it, like a hypothesis, I guess, or mm -hmm. maybe a uh, worldview, might be one way to put it forever, which is that the more intimate the, the devices, the more intimate the advertising needs to be. Mm -hmm. So on a TV, the ad can play on the, the wall over there, and it's the TV. But on my phone, this is my phone. You never say the phone. It's my phone. Right, and right. on my phone, which is like an extension of my human body in some ways, and it vibrates on my leg, and it's in my yeah. brain, and it has those you know, dopamine things. Anytime you see that little red icon that says there's a you know, notification, right, right. this is an extension of my body. Those ads need to be much more intimate. And if when I tried to make a phone call, there was a 15-second pre-roll before my phone call, I, would, I couldn't even imagine what I would do. You know, if I picked up my phone and as I unlocked the screen, there was an interstitial ad that said, hey, I'm an ad before you can look at your phone, I'd switch phones. I'd switch to a different carrier because it's just so intimate. And so the same thing applies to the IoT stuff. If Alexa, just on Alexa's own volition, said, hey, I've got an offer for you. Hey, I have an ad for you. Hey, I'm going to play an ad for 15 seconds in your living room. People would just throw it away. Right. So the ad formats that have to the only ad formats that can be sustainable for the IOT world of like a thing in your house that you think of as a feature of your house, they have to be integrated. Hey Alexa, uh, add toilet paper to my shopping cart. And then Alexa maybe says, here's a 20% off coupon if you choose this brand versus that brand. Or hey Alexa, play some, you know, some podcast and then maybe it suggests that, hey, instead of trying NPR, why don't you try the Tech, Tech Cat podcast today or something, but it needs to be really integrated to the experience. Uh, oh my God, hold on. You just intimate. triggered my Alexa. Alexa, stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Uh, even the, even moments like that, though, I know that's just a feature, not an ad, but even moments like that make people want to throw away their Alexas. Alexa, stop. <laughs> amazing. That's so funny. We have so to there you go. Point, case in point, that the more, yeah. the more intimate the device is, the more intimate the ad experience needs to be, and the more respectful that device needs to be to your, your human feelings and your humanity itself. And so you can't have an advertisers, you know, Coca-Cola or Nike jumping in and like the most extreme version would be this. If you have the virtual reality, Google glass type of model five years from now or whenever it is, and you're walking down the street with your connected glasses on and you've got the cool Warby Parkers that have the Google glass lens inside them. Right. There's zero chance that as you're walking down the street, Nike is going to black out your glasses and put up a big Nike ad. 
It doesn't even right. make sense to think about right, that. Right. But that's how TV ads work, and that's how most video ads work, and that's how most uh, digital ads work today, is you're trying to do something, and they pop in and say, hey, can't do that. Do me instead. Or, hey, you can't look at the screen. Look at my huge ad instead. Hey, you can't watch your video. Watch my video instead, uh, which works in an and it works in an experience that's kind of the other, that's unimportant and aside. But when that experience is connected to your human body, the the ad experience needs to be similarly intimate and similarly respectful. Hmm. Well, and well, as we move into this world with all these new platforms that you're looking at, and you mentioned that a lot of traditional marketers are moving into digital. Do you think this will lead to a restructuring of agencies and media agencies in particular? There, will there still be, you know, a uh, television entity and a digital entity, or will it all just combine? I know we're starting to see some of that, but will 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 it change the roles at all these agencies? I think formats will merge. That's for sure. Uh, whether creative and media continues to stay separate or not, I'm not sure. Which is creative. the craziest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Creative and media are separate. It, and for some ad models, that's maybe okay. Because if the ad is just a sticker that you're placing around and the ad that you're creating is a billboard, it sort of matters whether the billboard is going to go on the freeway or in a local neighborhood. But also doesn't really matter because either way, it's just some thing in the corner. Right, if the, right, right. If the, if the ad is a sticker, it's a square sticker that goes on the screen and it's got a picture of a happy family and a button that says sign up for Geico insurance will save you 15% on your car insurance or something. It doesn't really matter if the creative person who makes that knows exactly what sites it's going to run on because like it's just a sticker in the corner and nobody cares anyway. Right. But the more integrated the ads are and the more the ad is actually trying to make a human connection to get someone to comprehend it and the more that ad is actually integrated to the page itself the more I, as a creative, would say, I have to know where it's going to run. How could I possibly even make it without knowing where it's going to run? You, you can make a movie without knowing what theaters it's going to run in, but you can't make a, you, know, you can't make an, I don't know what the analogy would be, you can't make a, uh, an integrated video ad without knowing like where it's going to be integrated to. Right. Uh, same with a story-based ad or you know, content-driven ad. And there's, uh, there's a spectrum, but I guess I would say that eventually creative will demand that they understand where the, the ads will be integrated and that a media plan and a creative plan will be intertwined with each other. And now whether those yeah. are two different entities owned by two different holding companies or same holding <laughs> company with two offices, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's uh, retarded that it still works that way, but, but you're, <laughs> you're, absolutely you're absolutely right. So the uh, pro I can say this, though, programmatic will find its way into the media world and programmatic will, or I guess has found its way into the media world and programmatic will unify media agencies and their trading desks that a team who does planning and a team who does buying that's always seemed uh, incoherent to me. The idea that you could have a planning team who doesn't do buying and a buying team who doesn't do planning. Like those two things don't make any sense. So especially in a programmatic world where you're always planning, you're always optimizing, you're always buying, and you're always replanning, that needs to be one unified group of media planning slash strategy slash trading all in one team. And it can be different humans, but they need to be part of the same unified bubble. Yeah, that's a really good point. The um, So there's a lot going on um, with Google and Apple and Facebook and all of those guys right now when it comes to go the government. <laughs> 
And right now, the U.S. is is suing Google, and um, you know there's a lot of discussions about um, ad fraud, and everybody's sort of continuously readjusting their approach to these things. So how how do you guys play in this space with 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 the Googles and the Facebooks and uh, even the YouTubes with all of these issues going on? You just have to keep abreast of everything and make sure you know you're playing correctly in that or are you in constant touch with them or how, how does it work? Uh, I'd say the holy war is between Google and Facebook and we all live in the shadow. Every publisher, <laughs> every website, yeah. every ad tech company, every ad platform, DSP, SSP, whatever you name it. Uh, but there is a big holy war between Google and Facebook and that's a, a war for the internet, whether the internet should be Facebook or whether the internet should be a bunch of websites connected by HTTP, you know, .com domains. And Facebook obviously believes it's Facebook app, Facebook newsfeed, Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, soon to be virtual reality through Oculus. Right. They just launched shops. So shopping yeah. will be part of it. Yeah. But that's not a .com based, browser based open internet. It's a Facebook internet. Um, I, I remember a study I saw like five years ago from Facebook that I just thought was like so encapsulating at this point. They did a study, I forget where, I think they ran it in Europe or something. And they asked people, uh, what percentage of you have uh, access to the internet? And it was like, whatever, six, seven out of 10 or something. Yeah, they did it in really rural, rural areas. Seven out of 10 of people have access to the internet. What percentage of you have access to Facebook? Nine out of 10. Huh. <laughs> a lot of people would be like, yeah, no, I have Facebook, but I don't, I don't use the internet. Like I don't have access to internet. I don't use the internet, but I obviously use Facebook. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and I think there's something true there that in some ways the dot com, you know, Chrome, Safari, Firefox based, go to a website and go to CNN.com or go to techcatpodcast.com or go to whatever at age.com to me feels so important for that to survive and thrive and for independent accessible content to have a place that can live in the universe. Uh, but also it feels in some ways kind of antiquated. And I think figuring out what the future model of the internet will be, if it's not just Facebook, uh, is really what Google is you know, existentially fighting for, at least you know, on the front right. of advertising. And, and um, it, it's so interesting right now. So all of this is under this umbrella of um, ad tech. Um, and and there's there's been this sort of negative, you know, I don't know if you want to call it cloud hanging over ad tech as a concept. Um, you know, do you think that's dissipated? I mean, it just seemed like there was this real, like, everyone was behind ad tech investing in it, going mad about it. And now there's been a lot of pullback from it. Um, is, is it still, should it still be called that, you know, and, and where, where, where do you think the vibe is now? To me, it's about an independent internet because Google is just a big ad tech company and mm. Google owns the biggest DSP. Google owns the biggest SSP. Google owns the biggest ad server. Google owns the biggest analytics platform for advertising. Google owns every number one in every category of advertising, at least digital advertising. Right. Um, and in some ways, YouTube is trying to fight for you know, dominance in the connected TV space so that it can dominate the living room. Uh, every I think the reason that quote ad tech had kind of a you know up and down and has had a tumultuous ride over the past ten years or whatever is that in almost all cases when something starts to work Google kills it or buys it 
right, uh, right, right. or Yahoo, Verizon, et cetera, tries to you know, buy it to compete. But even compared, you know, compared to Google, nothing matters. I think that's why you're starting to see some government oversight, or at least like some noise about government oversight, which personally I doubt is going to go anywhere. Uh, but it's at least nice noise to hear uh, that at the macro level, when you squint your eyes at the internet, nothing matters other than Google. Uh, but I believe that each company like us who pushes the space forward, who pushes in a direction that Google's incumbents and size doesn't allow them to push in, um, and that just tries to make things better on the internet, at least moves the space forward, and there's a lot of value to be created uh, by moving a space forward and by creating value for, for advertisers and publishers that doesn't exist yet. Uh, but yeah, Google for sure dominates. And Facebook and Google you know, compete at the, the macro scale of just advertising, but in terms of ad tech, Facebook kind of has divested most of its core ad tech and really just is its own little closed, not little, its own huge closed environment. Yeah, um, yeah. And Facebook power, or sorry, Google powers the ad tech for the rest of the web. So we, like for us, we're integrated through Google on every angle. We're integrated through Google's DSP. So any buyer who uses Google's DSP can access share through supply. We're integrated through Google's ad server. So any publisher who wants to use share through as a monetization partner can install share through via their Google ad server connections, Google open bidding, they call it, or uh, Google DFP is double click their ad server. So we're integrated and we're definitely friendly and you have to be friendly with Google. Uh, yeah. And, you know, day to day, Google's a good partner. Day to day, Google is trying to build an ecosystem because they don't want to dominate 100% of advertising and they want a thriving economy around them. Uh, but, you know, year to year, decade to decade, Google's dominance just continues to, to grow. It's, a, it's scary when you talk about it, but I know it's not as, like, really scary, but it sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a little terrifying. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I guess I believe both those companies want to move in the direction of, of good. I yeah. believe that both Google and Facebook want the internet to thrive right. in different versions of the internet, maybe. I do believe they both want content to th thrive and for publishers to survive this challenge and for you know, journalists and writers to have jobs and for content to exist and be accessible and independent. Uh, I obviously believe that too. And so I think we're aligned in a lot of ways we're aligned with Google too, that I, I want the internet to thrive as an open and connected you know, environment, not to just be the Facebook companies, five or six apps that controls everything. Right. Agreed. Totally agreed. And, um, and just as we're wrapping up the show, um, do you have any predictions for trends coming up with everything that's been going on? Anything that you think is, coming up that's going to really change how we look at things and maybe even some plans for share through. I don't know if it's like a hot take prediction, but I just keep coming back to the empathy and humanism inside of advertising. I think that even though that sounds like an obvious point when you say it, there's just so many examples week in week out where you talk to an advertiser about the ads they're currently running, mm -hmm. you get them to stop for a second and really read the words or really hear the language in the video or just read the words inside of the banner. And they go, what was I thinking? Why, why would I ever want to say that to somebody? Yeah. Fine, if it's, if it's stuck <laughs> inside a banner and they're not going to read it, those words can live there. But why would we want someone to read those words? 
Right. And it's just making people start to making people being the brand marketers start to rethink like how important empathy and how important being human to humans is for a go forward strategy, which to me is a great thing because it starts from saying now that people are comprehending our ads, now that they're actually reading them, now that they're actually understanding them, let's just take stock for a second and think about what we want them to, what we want the ad to say and what we want someone to actually comprehend. Uh, and so to me, empathy is kind of like a, an underlying thread that ties a lot of this together. I started the year actually for my company at big offsite. I think it was January ish in um, Southern California. We, we, I got over together and essentially just told everybody that, you know, the pillar for this year is about empathy. This is pre Corona. Yeah. Pre, you know, in these trying times is before any of that. Right. Uh, but it was the well, story there was like, I, I guess so. My story though is about empathy for our buyer and empathy for the human on the internet. And every ad we serve needs to be empathetic to the, the human. Like mm. the user is on the screen and they're on their computer looking at the screen. We need to have empathy, not just for what pixels are served to the page or how we track it. But if you put yourself in their shoes, looking through their eyes and their brain, looking at the screen, let's design it so that it's just, a better user experience. But then the same thing also applies for publishers and buyers. You know, empathy for publishers, understanding the challenge of the space and that uh, sometimes publishers are forced to integrate ads that they would throw up on and that they feel really embarrassed by, but they have to. And every publisher has those ads on their site now. You look at it and it's belly fat things and it's mortgage scams yeah. and it's, you know, you only have to go so far as any premium publisher and click on an article and scroll to the bottom and you'll start to see stuff that you know, the CEO of that company is likely embarrassed by. Uh, so it's, for me, it's empathy for the publisher, understanding that position they're in and trying to build, trying to balance revenue and, and ad experience. And empathy for the buyer too, to me is about helping a buyer at, or meeting a buyer where they are and helping them run the, this better form of advertising but through their existing channels, their existing DSPs, their existing connections with their existing targeting capabilities um, and not have to change their strategy, not have to change the creative, not have to change their workflows, not even have to pay more for it, but just to kind of like bring something higher quality to the ecosystem, knowing that ideally higher performance will drive uh, higher revenue and that the companies who, who actually like generate net new value that, that translates into performance will also generate uh, enterprise value at the same time. Mm. So I've been thinking about empathy for a long time and this year the theme was empathy so I guess it all kind of came together right maybe and, you, know, you, were, um, you were sensing the, the greater need it it does it does seem uh, like we're heading towards less um, broadcast messaging and more down the funnel segment messaging which is mm -hmm. you know kind of what a platform like yours is set up for you know, um, to really target a particular audience. You yeah, know? we have a, a board member slash investor who many years ago said something that stuck with me that I, I still I still quote. Uh, and actually, I haven't said this for a while, so I might not exactly remember it. Hold on. But he's a Texas guy, so he's got the Texas twang. And he goes, like, <laughs> what you guys do is not the old world of, you know, war-based marketing of, like, targeting and uh, – uh, battle plans and conquesting and all that. It's more about finding the truth and just syndicating the truth. I really like that. <laughs> like the, the brand is finding their truth for that specific customer. Right. If, if the truth is that uh, 
the IT decision maker who works at uh, whatever brand you're trying to sell to has some technical problem that you're trying to help them solve, which what you just, is what you just described is like down the funnel marketing. Yeah, yeah. The ads to them shouldn't just be a colorful box with a happy face and a click click here button. The ad should actually be a story that says why this solution will help you solve your problem. Right, right. And so it's about like finding the truth and then syndicating that truth through paid media, through smart marketing, and through real budgets. Uh, but the ads that the ads that start in truth, where the advertisers actually like just retelling that story or just reintroducing a fact, those perform far better than the ones that are just like generic ads on a screen. Right. Um, um, I was just going to ask um, if you get any more vibes about the kind of year we're going to have, let us know ahead of time. <laughs> um, Dan, where, where can we learn more about ShareThrough? Uh, ShareThrough.com. Advertisers, publishers, uh, and you know, DSP partners, um, anybody who works in the space. We've got a bunch of tools on there for copywriters and creatives, but also you know, our core business is an ad exchange, and so we're connected to every publisher, we're connected to every DSP, and we work with advertisers, you know, the Unilevers, Cokes, Procter & Gamble's, but through to SMBs and mid-sized businesses. Uh, so we're definitely open for business. Relatively small company in the shadow of Google, but trying to punch above our weight class. Uh, keep it focused on the human. And and specifically on this native note, which you were so uh, key to help uh, surface as a concept um, in the industry. Um, thank you so much, Dan Greenberg from Share Through the CEO, who's um, helping us understand um, how to communicate empathy, I think, um, in advertising and um, drive great native um, advertising um, throughout a variety of publishers and other models. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back soon on the Tech Cat Show in the next week or two, bringing you some more insights from this crazy world where we're um, all starting to actually be able to leave our homes soon. And I'm sure that will impact a lot of the great media companies and technologists that we talk to at the show. So thanks so much for joining us. And we'll be uh, coming at you in a couple of weeks. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Cat Show. Please join Lori H. Schwartz again for another great program next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel and syndicated to the Voice America Women's Channel. 